The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We are going through the book of Acts, a history of the church written by the disciple Luke, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul. And as he was led by the Spirit of God, he intentionally wrote down this history of the church and also the beginnings of the church of Jesus Christ from the time of Christ's ascension to just about the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And he goes chronologically. We are now in chapter 13. Last week we covered all of chapter 12. Before we jump into Acts chapter 13, the first part, Acts 13 is actually a long chapter. And there's a lot of information there. So we're only going to look at the first 13 verses today. And in preparing our hearts to do that, I would invite you to go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Just by way of reminder, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Because in verse 8, this serves really as an outline of the book. And Luke, very logical and very consistent, lays it out. Quoting the words of Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead. He's with his disciples and apostles, training them just before his departure as he ascends and goes back into heaven. And before Jesus ascended back into heaven, called his disciples together and gave them a mandate. Part of that mandate is in verse 8. You, the apostles, and the disciples, followers of Christ, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you down from heaven in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which will become the birthday of the church. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit he comes upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. I will send you out to speak on my behalf. I will send you out with my authority to testify of me. I will send you out as you will be formally commissioned as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You will be my witnesses to be sent out and representing the Lord Jesus Christ, both in so there's the, the mandate, I will send you out at the appropriate time. And there's a strategy. And that's where Jesus says, you're going to start in Jerusalem, because that was the capital city, that's where the temple was. And the apostles, for the most part, were all uh, committed Old Testament Jews. So Jerusalem was the logical city in terms of religious practice. And so the church would start its mission in Jerusalem, in that city. And they would evangelize all the city. And then when they finished that, then they'd go out to Judea, the surrounding area. And when they did that, then they were supposed to go on to Samaria. So expanding concentric circles was the strategy by which they were to spread the gospel ultimately to the ends of the earth. Start in Jerusalem, start in your own backyard, and go from there, Judea, the neighborhood, Samaria, neighborhoods next to our neighborhood, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly how Luke writes this book, the book of Acts, 28 chapters. So it goes in this order. He tells us what happened in Jerusalem, the gospel in the early church. Then he tells us after that how the gospel spread to all of Judea. And then he shows in chapter 8 and 9 how it went to Samaria and a little bit on the outskirts of Samaria. And now for the rest of the book, Luke is going to show us how the gospel goes out to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And really, that is the theme of chapter 13 on. So really, so now go back to Acts chapter 13. We are, at least logically, now halfway through the book of Acts. So I just want to give you an overview of the book of Acts, and then we'll get right into uh, the sermon of the day, Paul's first missionary journey. Acts chapter 1-8 is a very specific outline of how the book will go. If you could divide the book of Acts, you can outline it in many different ways. But an easy way to outline the book of Acts is chapters 1 through 12, the first part of Acts 1 through 8. Chapters 1 through 12 covers ministry to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then chapters 13 to 28 covers ministry to the uttermost parts of the earth, and the trajectory is heading beyond that. So 1 through 12, and then 13 through 28. Or you could say 1 through 12 local evangelism, 13 through 28, global evangelism. Or you could say 1 through 12, the ministry of Peter, predominantly. And then 13 through 28, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. 
Or you could say, 1 through 12, Jerusalem is the headquarters of the early church. And 13 through 28, Antioch is the hub of world evangelism for the church. So those are all very specific and accentuated and highlight for us. So one more thing, Acts 1 through 12 covers the years 30 A.D. to about 45 A.D., so a 15-year period from the beginning of the church up until the gospel begins to reach the Gentiles. And then chapters 13 to 28 is 46 A.D., which is where we're starting today, and it goes on till near the end of Paul's ministry, around 64 A.D., an 18-year period, so 15 years and then 18 years. So that's kind of the logical breakdown of this book and an overview. Luke actually wrote this book, we think, around 64 A.D. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the main reasons is that he ends the book abruptly while Paul is still alive, although in prison, but still alive. So Paul's life wasn't over yet. So about 64 A.D. is the chronology. I also want to say that if you want to know, if you want to know anything about missions, how to do missions or how to do evangelism, all you need to do is go to the Bible. It's all there. The Bible is sufficient. Even more specifically, if you want to know how to do evangelism and missions, just go to the book of Acts. It's all there. I can't think of a principle regarding missions that is not either taught in the book of Acts or modeled by way of principle in the book of Acts. Hence the title today, Paul's First Missionary Journey, and what I'm speaking about there is global missions. But the word mission is a little confusing. What what do you guys do? When we first started GBF uh, 10 years ago, actually, let me say that again. When God started GBF, say, about 10 years ago, and we were a small rinky-dink group of people of 19 adults and children for the first year to probably the first five years i would get questions on a regular basis so what's your missions program how come you guys don't do missions that was another one that was a how come you guys don't do missions and i i would usually say well actually we we are a mission we are the quintessential example of what biblical missions is about so we actually do missions we are a mission and in some of those dialogues i found the word mission to be confusing because you never you never really know what people mean when they're asking those kind of questions because the first thing you want to get is what is your definition of missions first of all we got to deal with the word mission the word mission is latin that's the first problem <laughs> you won't find it in the bible it's confusing it's a johnny come lately term if you know Latin, it might be helpful because it just simply comes from the word in Latin that just means to send out, to send, to send out. And that's what we saw in Acts chapter 1, 8. Jesus said, I, you will be my witnesses. I will send you. Go, go, go. Turn that into Latin. That's missions. So that's what we're talking about. So when we're talking about missions. We're talking about evangelism, both local and global missions. That's true. And it starts with evangelism, sharing the gospel, and then so evangelism, sharing the gospel, and then when you win converts over, discipling them and helping them grow. And also a key, number three, is planting churches, local churches. Is at the heart of missions, sending. Because that's the institution that God has promised to build. I will build my church. You can't have missions without the local church. And then the last part of missions is you evangelize. You win over converts, you establish a church, and then you continue to train those in the local church to do the same and replicate themselves. That's biblical missions. That's what's modeled in the book of Acts. So I can't think of a better chapter or segment of Scripture that is a good outline of how to do biblical missions than Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Hence, in my outline, I've got nine points. Nine. And all I'm doing is just walking through the passage. This passage is a narrative passage and just trying to pull out principles there that we can benefit from and also replicate in our own lives and in our own local churches. So that's the goal this morning. A couple other things you need to know about chapter 13 in this transition. This is a major transitional chapter in the book. We are now transferring from P1 
Peter is now handing the baton to the Apostle Paul. Chapter 13 and 14 actually go together. The first missionary trip by the Apostle Paul entails chapter 13 and 14. They go together. But we can't preach on all of it in one sermon. So we've got to break it up, unfortunately. But I want to preserve the continuity as much as possible. So really, this is Paul's first missionary journey, part one. And then we'll have part two, part three, part four. See how long it takes us to get through chapter 14. Incredibly rich. There is so much here. So we'll see uh, how much we can glean out of it. Regarding this first missionary trip by the Apostle Paul, a couple of highlights about it, give you the big picture. It's the first missionary trip of the Apostle Paul. It is the first global missions trip, formally speaking, for the Apostle Paul and the church at that time. And this is the first missionary trip in the history of the world for the church. So it is highly significant. Sets a pattern for the rest of church history. The entire trip probably takes within the time frame of A.D. 46 to 48. Two years or around the best that we can determine. The first missionary trip. They travel a lot of places. Paul and his company of fellow missionaries minister in at least eight major cities along this trip. Eight major cities. Could have been more for all we know. And they covered at least 1,235 miles without modern-day transportation, without an airplane. It was a rough trip. Arduous, long, risky, dangerous. Also, when you study the book of Acts, especially when we get into the missionary trips of the Apostle Paul, we need to be mindful. We are dealing with true history here. We've seen this along the way. We keep intersecting with famous names, even in secular history, like Claudius and the Herods and... So we're dealing with true history, reliable history. We're also dealing with geography, some of it complicated geography, but it is accurate geography. It is amazing. I'm just going through here, looking at all these cities and regions and places, and every one of them by name can be found in a secular encyclopedia. The the Bible, it's just not going to make a mistake. This is reliable And all these cities that we're going to be seeing and mentioning throughout the rest of the book, you can go and visit them today. We have people in our church who have visited them. I know we have people in our church who have been to Cyprus. And that's where Paul's ministering. That's where we're looking at today. Paul's mission experience in Cyprus. We have believers who have been to Cyprus and visited there. And because they built so much stuff out of limestone 2,000 years ago in Israel and in Cyprus and the Greek world, much of it is still there. It is preserved. The roads, the walls, the pillar. It's amazing. So we're going to get a history lesson, a geography lesson, and also practical theology lesson. Because this is narrative. And from it we can glean. And so that's a good question. You know, as we're going through, this is a story, this is narrative. Well, Pastor Cliff, how does this apply to us? Because it's narrative. It's just a story. There aren't imperatives here and commands, and it's not Paul talking to you as the church. Hey, church, you need to do this. So does Acts 13 really apply to us? Is it really relevant to us? Absolutely. For many different reasons. Uh, number one being that it wasn't just Luke who wrote this. It was the Spirit of God who was moving Luke to write this. And one of the reasons the Holy Spirit wanted to do that was to preserve this truth for the church for the ages. So it was intentional on God's part to write this and preserve it for us even 2,000 years later. And that's why James says in his epistle, be doers of the word. That means when you read Scripture, do it. And the Apostle Paul, he was writing Scripture. He knew he was writing Scripture. He wrote 13 letters, and as he's writing the churches, he's saying things like, be models of me, be followers of me as I also am of Christ. Do what I do with respect to ministry as ordained by God. And Paul wasn't speaking only to the first generation. Paul knew he's speaking to generations beyond. Peter consciously referred to generations beyond of Christians beyond his day as he was moved by the Spirit of God. So this is absolutely relevant to us. So this is really Missions 101. So let's go ahead and look at this wonderful story in the first leg of Paul's journey in the first missionary trip ever. And I got, like I said, on your bulletin there, you can follow along there and use that as a roadmap as we go from verses 1 to 13. And we'll just read through it and stop along the way, maybe highlight one of the main principles therein and some other salient comments 
that could be beneficial for us in understanding the passage. Let's go ahead and look at it. The first missionary journey in the history of the world. Some of you are already missionaries or you've been on short-term missions trips. Be thinking about yourself as we go through, because really what you got there is a list of nine principles of biblical missions. By the way, there are more. There's probably 147 principles of biblical missions in verses 1 through 13, and I couldn't fit it on the paper. And I thought, okay, this will probably take me five hours to preach, so I should probably cut some out. So I I prioritized it. It was tough. It, that was painful. So I'm going to try my best. So this, in other words, this is not exhaustive. But they are incredibly helpful, and they are priorities. So some of you that are missionaries or have been on missions, you can think through this grid. How is this in keeping with how you think about missions? Maybe some of you have never been on a missions trip, but you want to go on missions, either short-term, long-term. And maybe this can be assimilated and become a part of your practical theology or philosophy of missions. I think it should because it comes right out of the Bible. So let's go ahead and look at it. This first amazing mission trip to the world. Point number one, if you want to do biblical missions, godly missions, point number one is you need to assembly, assemble a godly team, team ministry, team ministry. Look at verse one. Now, there were at Antioch, by the way, now what we're doing, there was a little parenthesis in chapter 12, because the last thing that we were talking about was God started a revival in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem in Antioch, that cosmopolitan, multicultural, secular city where there are all kinds of religions from the world and the third largest city in the Roman Empire and an absolutely beautiful city with half a million people living there. And there were some Christians that went to that city and started evangelizing and, and not just to Jewish people, but to Gentile people as well. And there was a massive revival of God's spirits moved and a church, a mega church exploded in this very significant city of Antioch. That's where we left off in Acts. And the apostles heard about it. Man, there is a church explosion going up uh, 300 miles north in Antioch. And the apostles said, wow, we need to check that out. Is this legit? What is God doing? That's exciting. And they sent Barnabas up there to check it out. So Barnabas travels 300 miles and looks at it. And Barnabas sees it. And it is legit. This is the spirit of God. Barnabas, it says, he rejoiced. He was praising God. And then he exhorted the saints to stay faithful and then uh, some people came up there to Antioch, some prophets of God at that church. Oh, and then Barnabas pastored that church and it started, it kept growing and he needed help. And I can't pastor the church all by myself. And he built a team. And one of the guys that he went out to try to find was Saul, the former Christian killer. And he got Saul, brought him back. And Saul joined the pastoral team of the church of Antioch and became a pastor and elder there all the while being an apostle. And they taught there for an entire year, Paul and Barnabas and a couple of other men. And the church kept growing. And then God sent some prophets up to Antioch and said, hey, there's a famine coming. And the people down in Jerusalem, 300 miles down south, your brethren and the Lord, they are going to be devastated by this oncoming famine. And so the church at Antioch had a heart for God's people down south. So they sent a team of relief with money to relieve the Christians who were suffering down in Jerusalem. And they sent Saul and Barnabas as part of the relief team. And Saul and Barnabas brought with them at least one assistant, young guy, young green whippersnapper named John Mark. Paul and, or Saul, to become Paul and Barnabas, they're a little older, they're more mature. John Mark, he's young. We know he's younger because that's what the Gospel of Mark says, young guy. And we're going to see he acts like a young, immature guy, although a believer. And so... Saul, Barnabas, John, Mark, go down, relieve the church of Jerusalem, and they go back up into Antioch, and here's where we pick up the story. So let's go ahead and look at uh, verse, 13, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, there were at the church at Antioch, in the church that was there, now a, a year or so has gone by, there were prophets and teachers. So they have established key, strong, mature, biblical leadership in the church. That is the foundation of any obedient, healthy, productive church. You have got to establish strong leadership. And it wasn't just one guy who's the senior pastor. And he's the only name of leadership you see on the bulletin or on the blog or on the website. The Lone Ranger. It is a team of ministers, a, t a team leadership ministry. By the way, that is not just true in this passage. That is true 
in every area of the Bible, the New Testament, with respect to any kind of ministry leadership, starting with Jesus himself, who trained 12 men, not one guy. Okay, Fred, I'm going to train just you for three years because you're going to be the senior pastor when I leave. No, it was 12 men who would be the joint team leaders and the elders and the apostles of the first church of Jerusalem. That was by design. Team ministry, vitally important. Anytime I see a church or a significant ministry and it's just one guy, it makes me nervous for a lot of reasons. It's like, man, that, oh, that's dangerous. You, you, you set your off, you're vulnerable. So that's how GBF started, is team ministry by design because it comes right out of the Bible. No way would I want to be a pastor at a church where I'm the only guy. I've been offered positions in the past, before GBF started, of many opportunities to be a pastor at a church here, there, and everywhere as the only guy, me, all by myself, no elders, no deacons. Very dangerous, very intimidating, very frightening. Team ministry. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was their prophets and teachers. These are the leaders of the church. There are five of them. They are significant. This is like the elder team, the elder board, as some churches would say. Who were they? Well, there was Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's your five leaders. Uh, the most significant, prominent, gifted, effective leaders of the five were Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. The only one of them was an apostle. That was Paul. Uh, Barnabas is called an apostle in a secondary sense. So you got a team of five leaders. The most significant were Barnabas and Saul at this church in Antioch. And what does God decide to do? Okay, we need to expand. We need to send missions. We need to send somebody from your church to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. So who should we send? And you can you can bet all the believers in Antioch were voting. Oh, yeah, you need to send. Absolutely. Send uh, Simeon and Cyrene. And, uh, that, and, or Lucius, sorry, and Menaean said, yeah, they're great candidates. And God says, I don't think so. I'm sending the best. I'm sending your two strongest leaders, Barnabas and Saul. So you can imagine what an impact that had on the local church. And that happens. Oh man, you're really, oh God, why are you sending? We need Barnabas. We need Paul. God knows what we need more than we do. Team ministry, notice God doesn't just send one person. He sends a team, Barnabas and Saul. We know that John Mark joined that team as well. There's at least three. No doubt there could have been others that joined them as well to help, but these are the leaders of the team, Barnabas and Saul. Team ministry and admissions, we need to do the same. Just a couple of things about these guys that's very interesting. We've already seen some vignettes in chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 11, about Barnabas that kind of gave us a portrait of his personality and his character. And just by way of reminder, very significant. Barnabas was probably an older man. His real name was Joseph. He was a Levite, so he's from the priestly line. He was actually from Cyprus, that island in the Mediterranean. So he was Greek, or he was a Jew, but he was Greek-speaking and from a Greek culture. Not a Gentile, but probably a Hellenistic Jew. So he wasn't a part of the hub of the very tight, closed enclave of Jerusalem, Judaism. So that's where he's from, Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. His real name was Joseph, but the apostles, after Barnabas heard the gospel and believed the gospel and got saved, so he became a Christian. So he's a believing Jew, a fulfilled Jew. In the church of Jerusalem, the first church, he was there from the beginning. And he just stood out in terms of his character giftedness and one of the ways that he stood out is he loved people and so the apostles called him son of encouragement that was the name they gave barnabas his real name was joseph the apostles called him barnabas bar son of nabas encourage son of encouragement why because he encouraged people he loved people he was a people person we know that by how he dealt with saul when nobody wanted to be around him after he got saved and Barnabas, how he treated John Mark when Paul wanted nothing to do with him for the stupid mistakes that he made as a young Christian. That was Barnabas. Just had this huge heart. Son of a, he was uh, wealthy because chapter 4 said that he owned land on the island of Cyprus or maybe in Jerusalem. So he's wealthy. He owned land. Not only was he wealthy, he was generous because he sold all that land and gave it to the church. That is generous. It is difficult to get people to part with their money. Barnabas. Loved Jesus more than he loved this world. 
So he's wealthy. He's gener- also, he's very trusting because in Acts chapter 4, it says he sold his property. He gave it to the church. Not, he didn't just give it to the church on behalf of the poor and those who were needy. So he's generous. But he, gave, he said it at the feet of the apostles, which tells me Joseph or Barnabas was a very trusting man. To give a lot of money to the church and lay it at their feet and trust the apostles and say, you know what? Here's all of my money. He didn't designate it for anything. I want 50% to go to infrastructure and I want 12% to go to the nursery because I have a new grandchild and I want 7% to go. No, he wasn't dictating anything. It was just complete trust. And so he just trusts the leadership of the church. He's trusting God. He's trusting the apostles. He's tr- And it, it does take trust to give your money to people. If you stick a penny in the plate ever here at GBF, to me, that's a sign, boy, you must trust somebody here. If it's not me, maybe you trust Pastor Bob or whoever else or some of the other elders. And that is sobering for me. Wow, we are responsible for this money that people work hard for to be good stewards of it. And I know a lot of people, including Christians, who have been burned to the past where they just don't trust people and they are unwilling to give to the local church. They're unwilling to put money in the plate and they have their horror stories to go along with it, how they have been burned by people and uh, money has been misspent and abused and everything else, all kinds of shenanigans behind the scenes. I understand that. So along with being trusting, I believe... Barnabas was probably also discerning because he's not just giving his money to anybody. He's giving his money to the right people. He knows the character of the apostles. You don't just give your money to anybody because that could be stupid and irresponsible. Don't give your money to foolish people. You need to be discerning. You need to think it through. You need to ask for God's wisdom and be a discerning giver. And that was true of Barnabas. He gave it to the right people. So his character is just there's it is fully orbed in terms of the quality of of this man. He was also an accepting person. We saw that he had a big heart, son of encouragement. He was accepting people despite their faults and their reputation. Also, he was respected. Not only did he respect the leadership of the church, he himself was respected by the people because they have this crisis, financial crisis, famine in Acts chapter 11 that there's going to be a famine and we got to collect some money and it could be a big chunk of money and we need somebody reliable. Or no, uh, when they were down in Jerusalem, that's what it was. And they heard about the revival up at Antioch. The apostles heard about the revival. Wow, something's going on. God's moving. We need somebody to go up there and see if this is legit, to see if this is true. We need a mature believer, a discerning believer, a reliable believer, someone who is faithful. And they chose Barnabas to be their representative, which tells me he was respected by the apostles. So it was reciprocal. And also when he gets up there to Antioch, he sees it and it says he exhorted the believers, he rejoiced with them, and he preached the word of God to them to continue to be faithful in the Lord, which tells you he has a shepherd's heart. He's a shepherd. And then it goes on in Acts chapter 11, it says this about, very specifically about Barnabas, he was, quote, a good man, end quote. That's amazing. Jesus said, call no man good. And yet, Acts chapter 11 says, Barnabas was a good... That sounds like a contradiction. Wait, Jesus said, call no man good. And Scripture says, Barnabas was a good man. How is that possible? Well, Jesus was simply saying, in and of yourself, as you came out of the womb, apart from God's intervention, you ain't good. You are bad, I am bad. And he told his apostles, you are evil. That's what he told them. How is that for a biography or an autobiography? Apart from God... You are evil, I am evil in our nature. Then you receive the gospel. God changes you, justifies you, transforms you, regenerates you, puts his spirit to live in you, literally forgives all of your sins, and God makes you good. Really. He makes you good in a legal sense. And anytime we submit to the obedience of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are being good or righteous in a practical sense. And that's characterized Barnabas's life. He was made good positionally and spiritually by God through salvation. Then practically he was good anytime he was obedient to God's word in the power of the spirit. And his reputation was he was a good man. That is encouraging. He was full of the Holy Spirit, it goes on to say, and also that he was full of faith. And then finally, I would say that Barnabas was a man of initiative. He's always ready to do it. He's not just waiting to be told to do something. He does things. He is a doer. He's taking initiative. 
And he does it when it's, he goes out and finds Paul, searches for Saul. So these are all key characteristics of a, a mature Christian, which is what you need on your missionary team. You need some mature Christians on your missionary team, and that's what they had. A couple other notes. Um, Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger actually is a Roman slash Latin term, and it means black. Simeon, who was called black. Simeon, the black guy. That's literally what it means. And probably Simeon of Cyrene, northern Africa. The black man from northern Africa. And he wasn't offended. Oh, that's not politically correct to call me black because my skin is black. He actually welcomed the term. And this is the blessed diversity of God. So you had Barnabas. He could have been maybe a brown guy for all we know if he was Jewish. Or maybe he was uh, Greek in origin and then his parents or whatever converted to Judaism generations ago. So maybe Barnabas was a white guy. So Barnabas the white guy, Simon the black guy, Lucius of Cyrene, another North African guy from Libya, could very well have been a black guy. As a matter of fact, he may have been converted by Simeon of Cyrene. By the way, Simeon the black guy who was called Niger, that's what Niger means. Most Bible scholars think this is the same Simeon who carried Jesus' cross. So Simeon is in Jerusalem during the Passover. The week Jesus dies, he's randomly, not randomly appointed by God, but randomly pulled out of the crowd to help Jesus carry his cross. He is just overwhelmed by being called to carry the cross for the Savior, gets saved, could very well be he goes back to his homeland in Cyrene, northern Africa, preaches the gospel, tells people about Jesus. One guy responds, probably Lucius. They become good friends. He is disciple. Then they move to the church in Antioch. They're evangelists. They're strongly. This is amazing. Lucius of Cyrene. And then there's Manan. Well, who was this guy? Well, he is the only one of these four. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, and Saul. All four of those guys were Hellenists. In other words, they were not born and raised in Israel. They were born and raised outside of Israel. But they were probably all still Jewish, but they were Hellenists. They spoke Greek growing up, trained in the Greek culture. Manaean, he was the exception. He was probably born and raised in Israel. Manaean, who had been brought up, get this, with Herod the Tetrarch. Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, the Greek word is very specific. It's Manaean, who was the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Manaean, who was the foster brother of Herod Antipas. Manaean, who was brought up in the same house and raised by Herod the Great. And his foster brother was Herod Antipas, who chopped the head off of John the Baptist. Manaean, who grew up in the home of Herod the Great, alongside his foster brother, Herod Antipas, who put Jesus on trial and mocked Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. This is the grace of God. The grace of God invades the home of the most vile, murderous, evil man in the history of the world, Herod the Great. The grace of God invades that home. One man doesn't respond, Herod Antipas, and he ends up, when he assumes power, Cuts the head off and kills the last Old Testament prophet. The other foster brother in the home responds to the grace of God. He grows up, becomes a believer, and becomes the first New Testament prophet. Isn't that amazing? That's the story of Ben-Hur all over again. So God has providentially assembled this very diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic, racial, cultural, economic, religious team and has made them one. You know, that's the miracle of the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ being born again, being added to the body of Christ. That is the only thing that can overcome the racial divide and prejudice in this sinful and fallen world. That's it. They are harmonious. They are a team. So let's move on. Number two. So you need a godly team. You need to serve in team ministry. You need partners. You need somebody to lean on. Lean on me. I should write a song. Lean on me. Verses two and four. Follow the Spirit's 
leading. We don't do things in our own initiative. Oh, I think I should do this and I want to do this and I want to go here and I want to. I've seen that a lot over the course of 25 years as a pastor and in the ministry, done it myself. And I've seen other people do it, especially with respect to missions. I've had time and time again, I get people coming to me saying, hey, I want to go to Zambia and I want to go to here and I want to go to this side of the world and I want to go here and I want to do this. And so then I inquire and, and ask, oh, okay, tell me your story. Why do you want to go there? What are you doing? And, and a lot of times it's because it's what, what I want to do. Well, what's your plan? Well, I don't have one, but I want to go there. Got to be real careful. You want to go somewhere and represent God and be a missionary on the other side of the world. You need to do it God's way and in his time, according to his biblical principles. That's why we're going over this. Principle number one is you've got to follow the Spirit's leading. Is God's Spirit truly leading here? And we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, especially in Paul's missionary journeys, the Spirit of God is leading, and Paul is sensitive to it. He is submissive to it, especially in Acts chapter 16. The Spirit was leading Paul, and the Spirit of God shut the door where Paul wanted to go. And the Spirit of God re- redirected Paul to go that way, and Paul said, okay, amen. And that's what's going on here. The Spirit of God is leading and initiating. What was the desire of the local church there in Antioch? Probably to keep Paul and Barnabas there at the church forever. But because the Spirit is leading in a different direction, they are submissive to the leading. And they discerned the leading of the Spirit. Verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord, these five men, and fasting, they were all practicing Jews who became Christians. If you were a practicing Jew in this day 2,000 years ago, you fasted two times a week. Not because the Old Testament taught that, because it doesn't. The Mosaic Law doesn't teach that. There's only one place in the entire Mosaic Law where there was fasting. And that was in on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And even that is debatable, because it doesn't say fasting. So you can make a case that nowhere in the Old Testament, and even in the Mosaic Law, did God command his people to fast. Really, in a required obligatory manner. But it was a recognized practice. And, and, and all fasting was, was you become so focused on God, his will, and wanting to discern God's will that you lose all affection and appetite for anything else in the world, and including food. God, I don't want to have other lusts to distract my thinking as I pray to you and try to search your scriptures and seek your will. That's really the essence of what fasting is, and that's what they were doing. This is deliberate, focused, ongoing prayer even depriving themselves of the luxuries and the pleasures of life, including food for a time. This, doesn't, this is not a promise that if you fast for a day or two, God's going to, boom, answer all of your prayers. That, that is not taught in the Bible. The more important thing is it is the Spirit of God who is leading. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, deep in prayer, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit is invisible. The Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a mouth. But the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit communicates. But it says right here, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. How did the Holy Spirit say that? What did that look like? Was it a voice from heaven? Set apart for me. An audible voice out of heaven that scared everybody and rocked the building? More than likely, God spoke to them through the prophets that were there. They were men. It says right there in verse 1, there were prophets in the church. We know from Corinthians in our study there, God spoke his word directly through prophets, through men, through women. And that's no, no doubt what happened here. There were men or women who had the gift of prophecy, could have been these guys mentioned in verse 1, who, led by the Spirit, they spoke a prophecy, and they spoke the Spirit of God, and they spoke it directly to Paul and Barnabas and the church. So the Holy Spirit said, God is speaking through the mouth of a human being. That's what that means. Not some kind of mystical thing that we should be trying to aspire to today. Set apart for me, Barnabas, it was very specific. Set apart for me. Set apart for me. When, when we serve in missions, we serve God. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is mentioned first. He's the elder statesman. He's the been a Christian longer, probably. Maybe even older than Saul. So for a while, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But there will be a change. Then it becomes Saul and Barnabas. And then it becomes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Because Paul was the apostle, not Barnabas. Except apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Very specific work. And we're going to see what that work is. So follow the Spirit's leading. Assemble a godly team, follow the Spirit's leading. Number three, verse three. 
be sent by the church. Be sent by the church. What is the greatest missions organization in the world? It is the church. What's the only missions organization in the Bible? The church. Am I opposed to mission organizations? Parachurch organizations? I'm not opposed to them. It all depends on that parachurch organization. What is their philosophy? What's their theology? What do they think of the church? We've done missions here at GBF all over the world. Mexico, St. Petersburg, Honduras, I could go on, Siberia in the middle of winter, 30 below, 5 feet of snow. Anyway, um, and all of those, the foundation of every single one of those was the local church. That's the way it should be. Oh, did I say India? Wow. India, that is all local church driven. And that's the model we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. And that's the model here. Who is the missionary sending agency? It is the local church of Antioch. Called by the Spirit of God. He'd be sent by, and by the way, it's corporately and collectively. They all had the vision. They were all communicated to. They all understood the will of God. They had all been in prayer. They all recognized the leadership and the leadership team. And the leadership team is commended to the church. They know the plan. And they actually participate in it. The whole church. And they pray for Barnabas and Saul. They lay their hands on them as a sign of solidarity and blessing from God. And then when they go on this two-year missionary trip, when they come back, where do Barnabas and Saul go to report? They go to the church, the collective local church. That is God's mission's sending agency. Be sent by the church. There are plenty of evangelistic organizations, missions organizations that are totally independent of the local church. That's kind of scary. I mean, they're doing a good work in terms of getting the gospel out, but if you don't have a direct conduit to the church, that's a problem. You're undercutting God's pattern. And there are plenty of evangelistic organizations and missions organizations, actually, that have nothing to do with the local church. They kind of don't even want to deal with the local church, but they should because the local church provides accountability. And if you don't have the church in your life, you don't have accountability. You're in an independent operator, and that is not what God wants. And so that's one of the keys in discerning what missions organization should you work with or missionaries should you work with. Who is your sending agency? What's your view of the local church? As a pastor, especially even just here at GBF for 10 years, you would be surprised at how many solicitations I get from missions organizations, evangelistic organizations, or individual people asking me as the pastor, one of the pastors of this church, to support them in local missions. And usually it is somebody I don't know from Adam. It's like, where, where do these people live? How do they get my name? How do they get my email? How do they know about GBF? A lot of times they're just searching the Internet and, oh, this church supports uh, Mexico and India. Boom. Maybe, they're, maybe they'll be a giver. And I'm very hesitant. I'll read through the material, but I'm very hesitant to just jump on board with anybody. Oh, we'll help you. Absolutely. Got to be discerning. Work with people who understand a proper view of the role of the church. Absolutely vital. Verse 3 goes on. Then when they fasted and prayed, that's the church body, joins in the prayer, and they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them away. So the whole church sends them. Send them. See, that's where that word mission came from, to be sent. That's what missions means. On a mission. So have a godly team, follow the Spirit, be sent by the church. Well, what do you do? Well, we just saw in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called. Do my agenda. Do what I want you to do. Well, what is that, God? Is it to have a soup kitchen? Is it to build a building? What is it? Well, in this case, it's very specific. Very specific. The heart of missions. Number four, preach the word. That's verse five. Picking up on verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Notice they were sent by the church and they were also sent by the Spirit. Uh, you could go with that Latin term. So being missioned out by the Holy Spirit, missioned out. They went down to Seleucia. That was a port just 15 miles away from Antioch by the sea so they could get a boat and leave. And from there, they sailed to the island of Cyprus. And so Cyprus is going to occupy the rest of this passage, and that's where they do their first missionary trip, the first leg of it. We're going to look at the missions to the island of Cyprus. Why do they go to Cyprus? Could be that it was strategic, it was smart. You know who was from Cyprus? It was Barnabas. That's his home turf. Hey, let's go share the God. Hey, let's go to my house. Let's go to my island. I grew up there. I know the ins and outs. There's all kinds of synagogues there. Paul, that we, or Saul, we can visit and preach the gospel. And I know all kinds of 
cul-de-sacs and neighborhoods where there's no gospel and a bunch of Gentiles and we can go there and preach the gospel and we can go by my grandma's house and get some soup and a good night's sleep and my uncle Fred, he'll take good care of us and some unsaved family members, I'd like to give the gospel to them too. What do you think, Saul? Sounds good to me. And so that's where they're heading to Cyprus, this island. So verse 5, when they reached, what was their mission? When they reached Salamis, that's the first city of a port on Cyprus. Some of you have been there. They began, what did they do right when they got there? Okay, we're here. Let's do our missions. What is that? They began to proclaim the word of God. There it is. They began to preach the gospel. They began to tell people that Jesus was Savior. He's the only way to heaven. He died on the cross for sinners. He rose again from the dead as predicted from the scriptures. He's the only way into heaven. We are all sinful. We need to be rescued by him and only him. It's not by human works or anything we can do. It is only by what God does through Jesus Christ. And you need to repent and believe in that. This is called the good news or the gospel. God wants to rescue people and save sinners and adopt them into his family. And you can only do that through Jesus. That was what they proclaimed. That's what it means. Proclaimed the word of God. Old Testament scripture and any other scripture that was accumulating at the time if they had any. But they're proclaiming the word of, and also divine and direct revelation that God was giving the Apostle Paul and had given the Apostle Paul. He was a conduit of direct revelation, which is also the word of God. So there they are preaching the gospel and they had a strategy. They didn't just start waltzing out in the streets. Their strategy was always the same. Paul grew up Jewish. He was trained as a rabbi. He served as a rabbi for a while. He was welcomed into all Jewish neighborhoods as a visiting rabbi. And the policy was if you're a visiting, qualified, credentialed, noted rabbi, then you were allowed to be the guest preacher or teacher if they invited you to do so. And wherever Paul went, if there was a synagogue, they invited him. He had a reputation. He had the credentials. And so that's true. He gets to Salamis here on Cyprus. The first thing he does is they go into a synagogue and Paul is preaching to Jews, but also Hellenistic Jews. And he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And shortly thereafter, probably getting booted out and chased out, running for his life. And they go to the next neighborhood, go to the next synagogue. And then they also start a a very deliberate ministry to Gentiles all over the place. But the launching point was always the synagogue and the Jews, because that's what Paul said in Romans chapter one, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we're going to see in Acts 17 Paul went to the synagogue, which was his custom, and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And that precedent started here. The Word of God in the synagogue. Proclaim the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their help. Well, this is John Mark. He is young. He's an attendant. He's. Uh, I believe that Barnabas believed he was an asset. Also, maybe an opportunity for training and discipleship and mentorship. John Mark. I don't know how much he had to convince Saul of that. Hey, let's take John Mark. I mean, hey, we took him down to on the relief gift with the money down to Jerusalem, and he did fine. He made the trip. He was helpful, wasn't he? And Paul, yeah, yeah, yeah I guess so. By the way, it helps when John Mark happens to be. Cousins with Barnabas. Yeah, family members. So John Mark is with... By the way, John Mark, this guy who blew it big time, he's a deserter. He's going to be a deserter in this story. John Mark, we're going to get to that point number nine. But just keep that in mind. He's been mentioned, I think, four times now. Because his mommy, Mary, that's where one of the headquarters of for Christianity down there in Jerusalem, where the prayer meeting was that allowed Peter to get set free. So, credible Christian family. Okay, number five. Persevere through opposition. There will be opposition. Anytime you are doing God's work, doing spiritual work, being obedient to Scripture, and especially proclaiming Jesus, that riles Satan up like nothing, and he will do everything he can to shut you down, to undermine you, to divert you, to distract you, to destroy you. If you're doing spiritual ministry, he will attack your marriage. If you're married, he will attack your personal moral life. He will attack your relationships. He will attack your finances. He will attack your thinking. He uh, it just goes on and on. That's how Satan operates. And Satan is on the prowl. He wants to shut this down. He doesn't relent. 
And you've got to persevere through the opposition. If you go on a short-term mission trip or a long-term mission, just expect opposition. Expect hardship, not just on a practical level and not just from division within the ranks of the people you're working with, but satanic, supernatural opposition trying to take you out or shut down the program. And so that's what we see all the way up to verse 8. So pick up at verse 6. John Mark was their helper, and when they had gone through the whole island of Cyprus, which is about a 100-mile trek as far as Paphos on the other coast, there on the west coast of the island, they found, and they're preaching the gospel, synagogue to synagogue, and also to the Gentiles. And while they're in Paphos, this very significant city on the island, they found a magician, Magos, Magi, a Magi, like the Magi of Matthew 2, uh, from the east originally. And they worked with the stars and... Many times they were illegitimate and into sorcery, and that's what this guy was. He was a magician. He was a magi. He was a self-proclaimed false prophet. He happened to be Jewish. He gave himself a name that means the enlightened one. And he ingratiated himself with the most important ruler on that island, the governor of the island called the proconsul. And he served in his court and was probably some kind of a quasi-counselor to the governor And so he was in the inner circle and was a mover and a shaker. And then Barnabas and Saul come in with the truth, and they're going to mess up his gig. And he is not going to be happy about that. He is a false prophet. False prophet, end of verse 6 says, whose name was Bar-Jesus. You know what that means? Son of salvation. Paul is going to rebuke him later and calls him son of the devil. Your name is son of salvation. You are son of Satan. That's really who you are. That's brutal. Verse 7. So there's this false prophet who was with the proconsul or the governor, this guy who was appointed there by the Romans to oversee the island on behalf of the Roman Empire, Sergius Paulus. Saul, who's with Barnabas, his Roman name is Paul, Paulus. You've got two Pauls here. Sergius Paul, a man of intelligence. So the proconsul, he's a sober-minded man. Somehow Barnabas and Saul actually get an audience with this guy, very influential, and Barnabas and Saul are preaching the gospel. And the proconsul, the governor, he is intrigued. Wow, this is fascinating. Could be he's never heard anything like this. Tell me more. Really? Wow, this totally goes against everything I heard about my religion, my pagan religion. You guys serious? This is astounding. So that's what's going on here. Uh, This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He was hungry. God was preparing his heart. And then the opposition, verse 8, but Elymas, Elymas, the enlightened one, the magician or the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, sorcerer, was opposing them. So Barnabas and Saul called him by the governor, and then this self-appointed prophet in the court just intervenes and steps in between them and tries to shut Paul and Barnabas down. The governor says, here, I want to hear what you have to say, Barnabas and Saul. And then this guy just steps in and interrupts. Oh, governor, don't listen to them. They are deceptive. They are outsiders. They speak no truth. This guy is a liar. The proconsul is not deceived. God was going to be gracious and give him discernment. Posing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the face. Verse 9. In missions, you need to lean on strong leadership. Strong leadership. You need a, weak, uh, a strong leader. Uh, verse 9, but Saul, but Saul, but Saul, meaning, okay, Paul. <laughs> so at one point, Paul had enough of the interrupting. Okay, I know who, the, I can see this guy, what his motive is, who he is, what he's doing. I am going to shut him down. Paul was strong. Paul was a strong leader. Paul had courage. Paul wasn't afraid to speak up. Paul had the fire of a guy like John the Baptist and all those Old Testament prophets in his blood. And he is going to speak the truth. Sometimes we get embarrassed by people like that, right? You want to go hide in a corner. There are plenty of Christians who would want to hide in a corner when you see what Paul did publicly. But he's a strong leader. Sometimes somebody has to speak up for God and his truth. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, the first time he's called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not doing this in the flesh, because what he's about to say, some many Christians would conclude, boy, that wasn't very nice, Paul. You probably hurt somebody's feelings. That was not in the spirit of Jesus. 
Well, actually it was because it said he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking as an apostle, as a prophet, divine revelation. God is leading him. It is harsh and it needed to be said. He fixed his gaze upon the son of Satan. Give me your look here, fella. So he wanted to make sure he got the message and the severity of it. Here's what he said. You are full of all deceit and fraud. That was his first sentence. You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? What a rebuke. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, Peter did the same thing with that pseudo magician guy who claimed to be a Christian and trying to buy the Holy Spirit. And Peter basically said the same thing to him publicly. You are a son of the devil. That, that is strong leadership, having that proper balance, knowing when to speak up and be strong and rebuke, and also when to back off, close your mouth, be gracious, let it go. A very hard balance, and you must be led by the Spirit. Lean on leadership. Paul was filled with the Spirit and made a great leader for our missions team. We needed to do the same. Can't have a bunch of excited, enthusiastic, young, immature Christians and 12 of them together. We want to go on a missions trip, and they don't have any mature leaders with him, that will be a disaster, misguided nightmare. Got a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of zeal. But they are incredibly weak and vulnerable. You need strong leadership and missions. What else do you need? Number seven, you need to walk by supernatural faith. Picking up at the end of verse 9, fixed his gaze on him, said, uh, rebuked him in verse 10, and then verse 11 he goes on and he says, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. He's speaking of prophecy here, direct revelation from Almighty God, the wrath of God. God's hand is upon you, not in a good way, but in a bad way, and you will be blind. You will be blind. You proclaim to see and be the enlightened one. Just the opposite is going to happen. You will become blind because you're spiritually blind. You're going to be literally, physically blind, and you will not see the sun for a time. Paul knows what this is like to be blinded by the wrath of God or God's will physically. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon Bar Jesus, Elymas, the magician, son of Satan, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So he's blind and he's trying to find people to help him. He is in physical darkness. He is in spiritual darkness. And Paul, I just put, uh, you need to walk by supernatural faith. And that's what Paul did. He is trusting the Lord. He speaks on behalf of the Lord as an apostle. And that took supernatural faith to trust God, that God would lead him every step of the way. And that's what Paul continually kept doing by way of default, falling back on the will of the Lord, trusting him, listening to his word. Faith only comes from one place, and it comes from God's word. Hearing God's word, being exposed to it, then actually believing it, and then stepping out, doing it. And that's modeled by Paul. You need to have faith when you're and walk by faith when you're doing missions. Number eight, well, despite the opposition and the challenges, you need to expect spiritual fruit if you're being obedient to God on the missions field, even if you can't see the fruit. Oh, we didn't get 17 uh, professions and salvations. That's okay. Were you faithful? Did you do what you're supposed to do? Did you plant the word of God? Did you preach the gospel? Did you serve people? Did you love them? Were you sensitive to the spirit? Were you obedient? Were you a godly example? Then there is spiritual fruit. And God is the one that determines what fruit is and what is not. But on, when you go on missions, biblical missions, you need to expect spiritual fruit. Verse 12, then despite the interference of this satanic opposition, the proconsul, the governor, Sergius Paulus, believed. What does that mean? He believed Barnabas and Saul. He believed the gospel that they had preached to them. He believed the Spirit of God opened up his heart, opened up his mind, and allowed him, enabled him to believe. And he got saved. Amazing. This is awesome. This is the most influential person on the island. The proconsul in that day had 100% authority over the military and all of civil life. Unilateral power. And this guy became a Christian. That is awesome. And no doubt changed the way that he ruled and over sought the island of Cyprus on the behalf of Rome. He believed. That's the goal. And when he saw what had happened, and also because of the teaching of the word of God, he was absolutely amazed by everything and had faith. And then finally, that's the good news, the bad news, more bad news, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions... So this all happened on the island of Cyprus, this amazing ministry. And it's time to move on as the Spirit is leaving. Now verse 13, work through conflict. Work through conflict in missions. You need to. Now Paul and his companions 
put on to sea, the Mediterranean Sea, from Paphos on the west coast there, got in a ship. John Mark is with them, maybe some other helpers as well. And then they sail 170 miles to Perga, going north, in the region of Pamphylia, to continue their ministry. Something significant happened here at this port city in Perga. John Mark, their teammate, part of the team, he deserted them. He bailed. He left. In an illegitimate manner, probably. The Bible doesn't say why John Mark left. All we know later on in the scriptures, we're going to see Paul is angry about it. He is mad. He is upset. He wants nothing to do with John Mark. I don't care, Barnabas, if John Mark is your younger cousin. He doesn't, I don't want to be serving with him. He's immature. He put our life at risk. He endangered the team. He was unfaithful to God. He was totally self-centered in what he did. That could be what Paul was thinking because we see that Paul was very angry about this. And he went toe-to-toe with Barnabas about it when they tried to resume another trip, taking John Mark. But he deserted. But we don't know why. So in Paul's mind, at least at this time, John Mark is totally disqualified. Now, it could be that John Mark was involved in compromised behavior, lacking courage, maybe even downright sinful behavior. Went home to mommy in Jerusalem. That's where he went. Now we can just write him off. Well, he's no good. He can't be salvaged. His sin was too egregious. Well, that's not the grace of God. God, in his grace and mercy, salvages John Mark. Became a, a key asset. So that when they embark on their second missionary journey, Paul goes with Silas and Barnabas goes with John Mark. Now you've got two missionary teams. Multiplication. Not only that, John Mark grows in his faith over the years because like two decades later, the Apostle Paul is writing in his epistles about John Mark. Oh, by the way, Timothy, or the Colossians, can you send John Mark to me? He is incredibly valuable to me. Give your greetings to John Mark. It's a beautiful thing. God grew and matured John Mark. And by the way, so John Mark abandoned and bailed and deserted in about 46 A.D. And God, in his grace, not only matured John Mark, but allowed him, get this, seven to ten years later, write one of the first books of the New Testament. John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. Isn't that amazing? What an incredible privilege. Not the first Gospel. Matthew was the first Gospel, then Mark. Maybe that's what Barnabas thought of why he would be an asset to take along on the team. But Paul, think about it. John Mark was around during the days of Jesus in his ministry. John Mark lived in Jerusalem. John Mark shadowed the apostles. John Mark followed the apostles and Jesus the night he got betrayed. John Mark ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was betrayed by Judas. John Mark was hiding in the bushes when they arrested Jesus and took him away to be crucified. John Mark was there. He saw it. How do we know that? That's what the Gospel of Mark says. Jesus gets arrested and taken away. And there's this really weird, obscure comment by the author. And there was a young man hiding who ran away naked, scared to death. So what is that? all? Who was that guy hiding in the bushes? And throughout church history, people have come. That was John Mark. John Mark had firsthand which is significant for Paul. Here's Paul and Barnabas, even though they were giants and pillars and stalwarts in the faith, they didn't, they weren't around in eyewitnesses of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, like John Mark. So it could very well be that that's why he was an asset. So there is the first leg of our first missionary journey and much that we can learn from. So Pastor Cliff, what do we do? It's a narrative passage. So what do we do now? Well, I just gave you nine things to do. This is what we need to do. GBF needs to do this in our missions. And you know what? We try to do this. I look at some of the missions we've done. We do do this. And we need to keep doing this. And you need to, if you go on a missions trip, you need to do this. Because this is the biblical model. This needs to be integrated in your philosophy of missions. And you need to pray for missionaries that you know that they would do this. That they are doing this. That they're obedient to this call. And pray on their behalf. And when you have opportunity and you can communicate this information to people who are in missions or want to be in missions who don't have this understanding, you will be a blessing to them. And we can thank God for it. Let's go ahead and go to prayer before we have lunch, thanking the Father for our time together. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and time to be in the Word. 
and this transitional yet very important part in Luke's story of the history of the church where you begin worldwide global missions. Father, help us to be obedient to the principles you've laid down in Scripture and the model you've set before us with faithful men like Paul, Barnabas, and so many others, and help us most of all be sensitive to the leading of your Spirit, all for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.